This is Culture Matters in Malden, a new podcast that explores culture and arts as a lens to discuss important themes relevant to the Malden community. Bright stones in sunlight. Pick one up and hold it against your eye. Slowly crack open your eye and let a new world in. The world of picking up a small thing and watching it unfold a universe. As a child, I found worlds on a rocky beach. I let in color and volume and light, the smell of salt and life and creation. That may have been when I became an artist. In solitude, I biked down dusty paths, hid in damp caves, lay on grass, watching the big screen above. Spaciousness was my muse. When I began calling myself an artist, I had been living in cities and painting abstract landscapes from my mind. When I began learning glass, I recovered an immediate tactile give and take between the worlds of matter and imagination, such as when I first held those stones. I have entered into crystal springs and jungles, reef, rainbow, and rock. I've seen the light within plants. Everywhere is a world vibrating with light. Color is a healer, and art can bring us closer to our source. I want to affirm and share that connection. I draw on all that honors the world so that my art can align itself with healing forces. That was Lisa Tiemann, our guest for today's episode, reading from her artist statement. My name is Amanda Hurley, and I'm the newest host on Culture Matters, here today with Osa Schwab. We do not have Maceo with us today, but he's another one of our hosts. And Osa and I are just so excited to sit down and talk with Lisa today. Lisa is an artist, a dancer, a teacher, and a nature lover. And I actually met Lisa when I was interviewing her for the Neighborhood View. I was speaking with her about her community art project, The Green Man Mosaic, which she worked on with 35 artists and they created this as a gift to the community. And this mosaic will actually be up in Cedar Park very soon for the public to enjoy. She also designs, produces and sells original art in stained glass, stone, mosaic and paints. And she teaches all kinds of classes. Lisa Tiemann, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. It's an honor for me too. <laughs> so going off of that wonderful piece that we started with, I wanted love to hear more about your relationship with nature, how it's informed your life, and how it's inspired you. Okay. Well, I could start by telling you how it unfolds on a daily basis. Um, it's kind of like an onion. It kind of, you can do layer after layer of that until it peels into the core and eventually I'll get to the core of it. But I'm in the woods every day. My dog insists on it. She is so happy to be there. She snuffles around everything. She feels the ground on her feet. She's everywhere. She's looking at everything and exploring. And I, I know exactly what she's feeling because I feel that same thing too. And I think we all have a wild nature within us. And she is such a visual 
representation of that in my life. I am constantly looking for ways to return to that special place. I think we're all probably, we probably all have that. So I'm, you know, not alone in it. I think we, we often get lost in our lives by these wonderful, amazing brains that we have which are so complicated and complex, but they lead us down these other places. And we're sort of in our own tunnel with that in some ways. So we forget that we are actually animals too. And this is, this is important for us to remember. And it's important that we get to just be those sensory creatures that we are and those feeling creatures that we are. I, I th- sometimes think that by being so verbal, we forget what it's like to be mute, like animals. Um, we forget what it's like to just, you know, be, be in our, be embodied. It's August Rodin, who's first said, art is the pleasure of a spirit that enters nature and discovers that it too has a soul. I, I thought that kind of summed it up in a certain way. But we all have to get back to our inner core. We were talking about Robin Wall Kimmerer before this all started in her amazing groundbreaking book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. She weaves together these threads. Um, she herself is a scientist and a native Potawatomi uh, Indian. And uh, she talks a lot about the intelligence of plants and what they have to teach us. And she really stresses the human kinship with plants and animals as our brothers and sisters. And I, I think a lot about that. In my work as an artist, I really try to express that in some way or another. I find it came to me sort of very naturally. And after I, I looked for years at what I'd been doing, I sort of looked back at my... Uh, my work, I realized they all had this human relationship to nature. So I want to read a little something from her. Um, she's quoting from a fellow writer named Gary Nabhan. He says, we can't meaningfully proceed with healing our relationship to the land that sustains us with restoration without a restoration. In other words, our relationship with land cannot heal until we hear its stories but who will tell them? Now, if you read Native American lore, it's full of these stories, stories that reinforce our direct and intimate connection with the natural world of plants and animals. So anyway, she goes on, in Western tradition, there's a recognized hierarchy of beings with, of course, human beings being on top, the pinnacle of evolution, the darling of creation, and plants being on the bottom. But in Native ways of knowing, Human beings are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. We say that humans have the least experience with how to live and thus the most to learn. We must look to our teachers among the species for guidance. Their wisdom is apparent in the ways that they live. They teach by example. They've been on the earth far longer than we have been and have had time to figure things out. Plants know how to make food and medicine from light and water. And then they give it away. <laughs> That's so cool. This sense of nature as uh, our environment, something we are part of, uh, we, we should be learners of our older brothers and sisters. That understanding, can you remember when that came to you? And 
for example, as a child, you know, how did you feel about being in nature? What was your sense of that at that time? And then I have a part two of the question, but first. <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't any abstract concept. I mean, my mother, as mothers did in those days, she just kicked us out of the house after breakfast and basically said, amuse yourselves until lunch. <laughs> yep. Just make sure you get back for the meals. So, um, you know, we, I rolled around in the dirt, you know, and uh, just mucked about and did all sorts of things that she never would have probably wanted me to do. And actually I was, uh, I was my, my biggest feeling about it was just the sense of adventure and exploration, you know, that it gave me. And I, I, was, I was a huntress from a very early age I collected animals in any possible way that I could. I, I collected bees, I, uh, frogs, toads, snakes. I am not proud of that now because I think, you know, probably a small animal's worst nightmare is to be captured by a child. I just wanted to play with them. I wanted so much to be with them and to relate to them. And uh, my last... Uh, my last attempt at that was when I was nine and I'd been uh, living for the summer on Shelter Island, New York, where my grandmother had a house and it was full of rabbits. And I, I just loved rabbits so much. They were so beautiful and I really wanted one. And I spent the whole summer running through backyards. As soon as it got to be dusk, I'd grab my mother's um, crab net my grandmother's crab net, excuse me. And I would chase rabbits. And of course my parents thought, well, that'll keep her busy for a while. And never thinking I would catch one. And finally, the last week of summer, I did catch one. And I put it in this box I had improvised to be a holding pen. And I looked at it and I sat there and it sat there and I said, to myself, this rabbit doesn't like me. <laughs> I can't pet this rabbit, I can't play with it. It's never going to be my friend. It just wants to be free. And so after a few minutes, the rabbit caught its breath and it actually escaped my box, which hadn't been very well thought out. So I spent a few hours crying, but I had, I had turned a corner. I realized that wild things need to be wild. And it wasn't a question of owning them and possessing them. It was just a question of uh, appreciating their beauty and um, learning to know who they were on their own terms. Honestly, what comes to my mind next is I feel like there was a sort of natural, well, childlike, uh, exploration, playing with, learning from, but I'm just wondering if all the people who m either never felt that connection with nature as a child, because they didn't roam around in the forest, or they didn't have access to nature, or they had some disconnect along the way when they went to college and had to work at, you know, in the city or something, and I'm just you know, wondering what is that bridge back to this essential place that some people find naturally, or it's it it always is there and it is there for the forever. 
Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I sure do. Well, it's interesting, you know, because we, we think of ourselves as the, the center of the universe. And I, I sort of wonder if every animal doesn't think of itself, his, his self or himself or herself as the center of the universe. And uh, whether COVID now does think of itself, it certainly feels like the center of our universe right now. But it's been forcing people to spend time home alone together and, and in an effort to maintain their sanity. A lot of them have found the woods again, which I think is great. I think a lot of people never do. Um, and so the question of how to, how, in, how to engage people on that level is, is one that environmentalists struggle with all the time. And I think from my perspective as an artist, one of the best things I think we can do is to find other ways to engage people in some active way in that, you know, and if it's not some sort of environmental volunteerism or something, art, it, you know, nature is full of wonderful themes for creating art. And I think art is transformative. It's one thing to look at art and be transformed in that way, but even more so is, is the question of actually making art. Because in making art, we create the world in our own image. We can we empower ourselves to create something in a new way. And so uh, sometimes that has to do with nature and sometimes it doesn't. For me in this Green Man project, the theme was nature. The theme was getting back into that. So I hope to do a lot more of it. I think there are a lot of people out there doing it um, because what we need to do is recognize that the most inspiring thing to get us to mo to be motivated is joy. You know, when you connect with something you love, you know, whether it's food or movies or, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's, and it produces joy in you. You have the possibility of seeing the world in a new way and changing, you know? So hopefully I'm hoping that the green man brings a lot of joy to people that it's not, it's not meant to be a didactic sort of, take on things. It's not meant to inspire guilt or shame or horror or any of these things that we constantly plague ourselves with now about the environment and what's going on. You know, it's really meant to say, this is the world of nature. Isn't it beautiful? Um, just to touch upon uh, your, your remarks about being a child and being out in nature and that being the moment that you became an artist, and I'm interested about that crossing over moment, that moment when you were um, painting abstract landscapes, when you started to call yourself an artist and between the moment when you become an artist and call yourself an artist, is there a struggle there? Is there some kind of light bulb moment? And can anyone be an artist or call themselves that? <laughs> yeah, it's a struggle, isn't it? It's when I, when I first saw those shining rocks on the beach, I didn't call myself an artist. I was four or five years old. You know, I, it didn't occur to me, oh, you know, now I have to go create rocks in art. It wasn't like that. It was, it was a recognition of awe. It was a feeling of ecstasy. And somebody else might have re reacted to that same experience by becoming a scientist or you know, not reacted at all, but somehow that stuck with me uh, as, as one of the 
one of the primary uh, times in my life that I had actually, you know, experienced how amazing it is to go deeply into things. And so I wasn't an artist by name, by profession until I was 27. I never really thought I could do it because you couldn't make a living at it, according to everyone, you know, and it would just be too wonderful. I mean, being an artist is a lifestyle, you know, and I was struggling with that. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And since I couldn't be, you know, an artist, I was casting about and finally, you know, it occurred to me that that, that was re really the only thing that clicked. So I might as well go with it. And I'm, I'm a big believer now at this stage of my life that you should go wherever the energy takes you. You know, don't try to be something you think you should be. Find what, as, they, as the saying goes today, find what sparks joy in you. And just give it all you can and see what happens. You know, so I, yes, we're all artists. As children, we're all artists. We're artists so naturally. And, you know, if you say, make me a picture, they'll say, you want a picture? Okay, here's a picture. You want another? And they're not self-conscious about it. And they're not grandiose. And until they get to be the age of intellect or judgment or something, nobody has explained to them what good art is supposed to be. I'm curious how this ties into community art, because I know I have so many artists in my life and also non-artists, and I can see there's that need for, for creative expression for people who don't have it in their life. And I'm curious, is the interest in community projects about bridging that gap, or is it about sharing what you love uh, with others who might not have art in their life? It's definitely about sharing what I love. I actually think I'm a better teacher than artist because I'm constantly amazed at what my students come up with. And I think I watch them work and I think, how did they do that? <laughs> and I'm there to guide. I'm there to open a door and to shine a light. But I don't think I'm there to show them what they're supposed to do. So for me, it's just a wonderful, uh, it's magic. I mean, People are creating something that never existed before. Boom, mm -hmm. right in front of your eyes, they created and they came in not knowing what they wanted to do. Like me, I don't know what I want to do before I start. You know, I think it's a lifelong process getting to figure out what you really want to do and how to, how to do it and how to say it. And uh, it's constantly changing. But community art for me is just way fun. And secondly, when I think of how how I want to be an artist in the world, what in particular do I have to give that's the most valuable? It's not necessarily to create one more beautiful thing. It's the process of creating. We can make beautiful things and that's great, but to be actually in the process of making them is transformative in itself. I, you know, I love the transformation. I love the things that arise that we that are unexpected in the unexpected ways that that takes people in different directions. So that's kind of the magic. And I can just sit back and watch that. Do you have an example of uh, where you observed someone who would not call themselves an artist and maybe were even re resistant where they began to create and there was a shift in them? Do you, can you think of a, an example of that? 
Oh, there's so many. I immediately think of dance. I'm a dance teacher too. And I, I started dance because I had terrible body image and I really wanted to heal myself from that. And I found that a lot of women do. And I became, I, I got very lucky and um, became a part of a class that, are, that eventually formed a group called the Goddess Dancing. We, we co-created this thing that became a huge phenomenon um, where we taught and performed and all sorts of women wanted to learn belly dance. Uh, and so here I was, you know, with my own body image issues, but empowering other women. And we were all in the community together, healing each other. And everybody came into it, you know, with doubt, you know, about whether they were worthy of doing this. And they got into the music and the rhythm and they got into their form and they became empowered in ways that they could never have imagined, you know, and some of them became belly dancers and belly dance teachers or other kinds of teachers. I think it was one of my biggest teachings. We were able to give each other permission to just be fully who we were. It was probably my first real community art piece. I had been a teacher in various uh, venues, but um, the actual act of co-creating something with a group of, in this case, women, uh, made us all stronger, made us all more able to say no when we needed to say no, <laughs> made us more able to say yes to the good things that came, and it made us feel beautiful, you know. And I think art is a lot about beauty, whether it's dance or visual arts. Beauty is no small trivial thing. It brings joy. We need it in our lives. So that's a big part of it. I, I've seen it in other, I did after school programs. This was a, a place where the kids were from age five to 10. And uh, I had them make these paper mache birds and they were all beautiful and colorful. And we ended up with these trees full of birds. Everybody was changed by that thing that we created together and everybody created their own piece. But what we ended up creating was a community of birds. And I, I have to believe there's something just wonderful about seeing trees full of birds that you created. It was fun. I think your, your latest project, the Green Man Mosaic, is a great example of this because you have these 35 artists and some are established artists, some are children or residents, people that aren't necessarily considering themselves artists and that they've completed something that is going to be in public viewing that they can now tell themselves in their heads, I'm, I'm an artist and that how empowering is that? Yeah, it was, certainly we had the whole gamut of people in there, some very professional skilled artists and uh, some of my the people I admire locally, as well as well, the youngest was age eight. You know, so that was a lot about trust. Um, you know, you put something together like that and I coordinated it and I was there to teach how people how to put a mosaic together, but they had their own free reign on what they were gonna put in there, in their panel. So who knew? 
what was what it was going to end up looking like. I certainly had no expectations. I knew it was going to be something wonderful. It ended up, I, I sort of started thinking that it kind of is like nature. It's this big jumble. It's this big hodgepodge of life forms. And they're all coexisting. And they're in this rather formal framework. So it's like a frame within a frame within a frame. And that kinds of give it a little rhythm and structure. But uh, the work itself, it all works together. Like if you think of your backyard, I, I think I was saying this to you, Amanda, uh, earlier that, uh, you know, you have the snails and the snakes and the, you know, chipmunks and, you know, whatever else is out there. And they're just all so different, yet they all have some relation to each other. They all work together in creating our backyard, they create our nature, you know, so. That's so true. Yeah, the the um, green man itself is like its own little ecosystem. Like no one in nature is saying, hey, you gotta put this here and you gotta put this there. So just leaving people to their own devices and how they interpret nature is a really great uh, way of doing it. It involves trust. I was gonna ask about the trust and also ego because I have been in conversation with a variety of artists, uh, musicians especially, who uh, may be jazz musicians where there's a certain amount of improv that is very much a part. Uh, so there's some, some loose structure, um, but certainly um, I've also been around other kinds of musicians who may not be so generous. Uh, so I'm curious how, in some ways you sort of, if it, if it happens in nature, it's organic and people kind of, all the species have their sense of, their role is programmed and they're responding, but there's no sort of super ego or id that's, <laughs> that's operating to say necessarily, well, I know better, or, you know, uh, maybe it's a lion who says, well, I have to eat you, but, you know. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so how have you seen the role of ego either fade away or transform so that that spirit can be there? Well, I learned a long time ago, it's not about me. <laughs> um, and I think it happens as you get older that you realize there's a lot more, you know, I've been very lucky in my life. I've had a lot of healing. And uh, at a certain point, you, you realize that the only thing left for you really is to, to be of service. So it's not about ego for me. I, I, um, it's not that I don't have an ego, but I am, I'm so open and I, I'm so open to what comes. And I really believe that everybody has a role to play. And this is where the community piece is significant to me and, and the trust. I mean, there are people from all different political persuasions and ethnicities and religions and I think it's like society. You have to trust that somehow they fit in. Somehow there's a role for them to play. And it's not going to be your role. It's going to be a very unique role. It's not to say that there isn't some structure needed in some way to incorporate those personalities um, that you have to figure out what, what is the best way to do that, what works. But I mean, there was nobody kicked out of the project. <laughs> there's nobody's work that didn't warrant being included. I suppose you could have had another sort of project where it would have been set up very differently and hierarchically. And the only hierarchy 
there really is the is the grid. But it sounds like your demeanor sort of creates that platform of people, even if they had an ego coming in. Yeah. <laughs> they might have left it at the door when they experience or feel or they have a sense of the structure. Yeah, I mean, the only bad ego is a hurt ego. So ego in and of itself is has a function. Uh, no, I'm, I'm there to empower. And I learned, again, I go back to teaching dance and being part of a dance troupe where we all we all worked in a nonviolent capacity. We um, it was a consensus group that ran very well for ten years, and we all had egos, you know. But um, but we were all empowered to be who we were. It requires a degree of understanding on every every person's level who is there, you know. Somebody could turn it into an ego thing, you know. But it certainly didn't come up in this, and and maybe. Maybe that's just because I, I gave them a lot of permission, you know, and uh, really was totally delighted with everybody's effort. People really wanted to make something. They wanted to make something beautiful. And they were very focused on their own work and their own process. The, the part of putting it together after that was um, going to be very different. We had a pandemic, so I ended up being the, way, the person to assemble things myself. And I engaged a few of the other artists who came and, you know, offered opinions as to where things should go in the piece. Um, but pretty much they stayed where they were originally meant to go. You know, we didn't have our big grouting party. I ended up doing most of the grouting, a little help from friends. That's the way it all finally came together. It was a question of whether I wanted to, you know, wait another year or so for this to happen or whether we wanted to just see it you know, realized, you know, life gets in the way and shapes things. Yeah, I think that um, you mentioned ego, which I, I think ego can be positive or negative, depending, but I, I just would imagine a community project like that would kind of create a healthy ego for both the experienced and the inexperienced kind of would level things out. Mm -hmm. So I just felt there was something so lovely about that. And something that just like cuts at loneliness, the lonely feeling of yeah. trying to be an artist in this world and, and yes. just trying to define yourself that way. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. That means a lot to me. Yeah. Um, the art market can be a brutal place, as we know. <laughs> sure, definitely. And this um, has nothing to do with the market. <laughs> we were, from the start, we were going to give this away. This was going to be a donation. You know, nobody you know, wanted to keep their piece and try to sell it in the gallery or anything like that, you know, yeah. it was a giveaway. I think that's really powerful that you said that. Um, and I'm thinking about the experience of the gallery um, a couple of years ago when we were able to step into a donated commercial mm -hmm. space. So from the get-go, the whole idea was only made possible by a gift um, of space and then there was the gift of time and investment and trusting in, in a hope and a vision. And the atmosphere of that generosity as the core of the very initiative was so powerful. And I remember when we, the second year, we I sought out another space to see what other kinds of spaces were available. And someone wanted to offer it for a amount of money. And I thought, no. 
we're going where the generosity is and that's gonna give birth to a different kind of spaciousness which allows for creativity. And I think when you said spaciousness, Lisa, there's a profoundness about that that comes from different places, I think. Mm, yes, yes, if we just let it unfold and, mm -hmm. uh, and see the gift, see the gift for what it is. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, generosity breeds generosity. It does. And there's something to be said about just taking any aspect of commercialism out of it, of just making art, just trying to make something beautiful without, oh, what is this worth? Or what could it be worth? I'm curious kind of what, what you all think, you know, the needs are going forward, but it just occurred to me, I mean, I've thought about it many times, is the need to reframe what businesses and what commerce is and what transactions and how mm. money plays a role in the art and how we reframe our thinking about it? Yeah, that's a big question. It's a huge question. And I'm all for artists getting paid, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, all, we all need to survive. The coming together just created more wealth, I think. So, you know, if we could all get back to that place of, you know, knowing that there's enough for everyone and it doesn't always pay the bills, but... <laughs> Sometimes it goes beyond that. I've been very lucky. So many people have come forth with huge donations for this wall we've had to build in order to have a place to put the mosaic. I'm so moved by the people who have given these gifts to us, people and organizations. So it, it made the giving that much bigger. I'm of that mind as well that I just think the arts should be supported. I spent a couple of weeks in London and just just went to two plays a day and just took in the theater scene and to see what they came up with with the with all that funding where there wasn't any pressure to fill seats there wasn't they weren't being told to do things a certain way and they were able to make edgy work mm -hmm. uh, it blew my mind because I was just like oh imagine if we had that freedom it would be a game changer I, in so many ways I have a couple of friends in Germany who are artists and of course during COVID they're theater artists that during COVID they haven't been able to be in the theater and of course artists have come up with all sorts of unique ways to show their work and do their work but they have a government that you know funds them for two years to do their work you know to do art in whatever way shape or form it gets done you know so there's an understanding that this is a process that you can't you can't monitor you can't you can't monetize you just have to value it you have to value the importance of it so yeah i mean they're okay they're doing okay during the pandemic yeah you know, and then they have health insurance too you know which <laughs> not to get too political but um yeah, <laughs> yeah when i no i i mean i had a studio i was trying to i was making a living a meager living um with a stained glass studio and had to give it up when health insurance, this was back in the uh, late 80s, my personal health insurance was uh, became $550 a month. And I said, mm. I have to get a job. I can't do my art and pay for this. And I think there are a lot of people in the world who are not just artists, but in other fields who are prevented from doing what they're best at. 
and what they would really be brilliant at. I'd love to talk a little more about Green Man, just to backtrack track a little bit for our listeners. Could you tell us a little about him and, and you know, why is there a human image there? Okay, so, uh, you know, traveling a lot, if you have the good fortune to go to the British Isles or other places in the world, this is an ancient image. This exists everywhere. It's in Iran, it's in India, it's in South America. There is a, a being who is one and integral with nature, who has that kinship with nature in the same way that perhaps some of the Native Americans uh, teachings teach us. And he's in, you know, carved in stone um, in, in the interior of churches, but usually predating predating Christianity quite often. Um, and he is the forest being. He's, uh, there are many different interpretations and of course nothing was written from that time, but he's considered Jack of the Green or Robin Hood or something like that. He is the being who lives in nature and who is, who is not separate from. He's plant and animal equally. And he is uh, a little bit mischievous, but very mysterious, you know, and and lives outside of, you know, straight lines and rectilinear buildings. Um, and, you know, so there are many different ways to interpret him. And um, I just thought, you know, one day I just thought, we don't have any green men in North America, at least, you know, not, not of any sort of personal, um, you know, you don't go to a town and see a green man there. And why not? So he's a man because green man is a man. He, he also represents the cycle of life, which is birth, life, death, renewal. He's the whole cycle. And he's the son of the mother. He's the son of mother nature, who is formless. Mother Nature is the immense void in which all creative things happen and are created and turned into form. So, you know, we, we often trivialize, you know, anything feminine in our culture. And I thought, well, we, what we really need is an image for men to see themselves in this. So it wasn't to be sentimental. It was to be playful and joyful. I still want to do a Mother Nature thing, but she's more of a challenge because she can be so easily trivialized and sentimental, sentimentalized. And men as well as women really need to see themselves as children of nature, brothers and sisters of plants and animals. We can all get back to a more cooperative relationship. So I thought it would be a fun project and you know, I don't want it, as I said before, I don't want it to be heavy handed, I want it to be joyful and liberating and um, yeah uh-huh. yeah I'm getting that I'm glad that you clarified because in my mind of course it was like well why a man you know <laughs> sometimes I think we go there we're like why the patriarchy again um but it right. men are really left out in a lot of these important ways they're not seen as nurturers or they're not seen as like earthy or part of nature things that make you human that men are not associated with and that make you have like part of the world and have you know these soulful things 
So it's nice to see the male image in that in that way. Yeah, I, I feel sad for men these days. It's kind of been the decade of the woman um, in a certain yeah. way. And, and we've made progress and that's been good. But the men kind of get left out of a lot of it. They are so important in their the energies that they bring, it's not about creating another duality. There is a yin and yang to things as masculine and feminine. Yeah. There's all the power and sometimes ferocity and sometimes, you know, the builder and the hunter and the lover and all yeah. those things that we need to honor in men as well. I'm so struck by the loving hands of an artist that who can stretch out some sort of canvas of experience to hold the complexity of male, female, or good, evil, or so that we don't sort of in our minds, it's either or. Mm -hmm. So this is just an ex example that your idea of using Green Man as this vehicle for a community project with this history and then it makes possible to say, and, you know, instead of, or, you know, female or man, you know, in a way, because there's a backstory and there's a reason and that um, you're celebrating man, but also as a human being, we're all part of nature. So I'm just struck by that, you know, as I, I was listening to you, Lisa. Um, well, thank you, Osa, because you, you allowed me to get to the crux of what I want to say. <laughs> Which is that, you know, when I talked about healing, it's really this big thing that we need to heal in ourselves, this dichotomy that we feel of being inside and outside of nature, you know, of being not included, of losing our connection with that and being maybe less than. So when we talk about I love nature, we talk about ourselves as well as everything else. If I could do anything as an artist to use that art to be a healer, it would be to heal our connection to what we intrinsically are. It would be to heal the split that we feel in our brains that really isn't there. It's really just something, it's an illusion that we created somewhere along the way in our culture. And that if we can go back to healing that split and becoming one, Everything else, I think, would be a lot easier. We would regain our sanity. People think of the, the forest or nature as a way, as a place to refine our sanity. And uh, if we can find that in ourselves, we heal. Yeah, I, that poem sort of reminded me of this, like this idea that just everything created in nature is a piece of art. You know that we are art. Even us, we're art. So that if we were able to heal that divide and to uh, sort of let go of our need to be human or separate, then I don't think we would question whether or not we could be artists, whether or not we had something to express. The whole idea of a mosaic is so interesting as a way to, it's like all these disparate pieces of different oh. shapes and colors mm. and, and, uh, textures and they come together and then when you step back it's a, as one you know it, it, it creates a shape so it's sort of it's oh, such a wonderful yeah. metaphor for we are many but we are one as a stained glass artist I um, 
after many years of cutting glass and raking big pieces and creating smaller ones with them, you end up with a studio full of small pieces that you have nothing to do with. You, you can't really use in a real way in stained glass. So a lot of stained glass artists become <laughs> mosaicists when they have to figure out how to use all this stuff. So I was in the process of, of starting that when I was reading a book by Terry Tempest Williams, who is another amazing scientist who is also an amazing writer on the environment. She was writing about her studies with prairie dogs in Utah and how they fit into the mosaic of the landscape there. And they've been so disparaged and ranchers used to think they were bad for the cattle, whereas what they actually do is fertilize the soil so that grass can grow. They aerate it with their holes. And so they create a lush plain for cattle to graze on. But anyway, her whole book is full of anecdotes like that. The book that I was reading uh, was Finding Beauty in a Broken World. And I feel that's what stained glass mosaic is, or any kind of mosaic. It doesn't have to be stained glass. What she did after a lot of uh, writing and lamenting the loss of habitat and species and all this very sad stuff was she gave herself a holiday in Italy, in Ravenna, and took a mosaic workshop, which was just the most solace for her. And she ended up being part of a team that actually went after the Rwandan genocides. The Tutsi and the Hutu had committed such atrocities against each other, and she went into some of the villages there, and they created these mosaics that were part of their healing and reconciliation. I'm sure you can find her on the website and, and her work on that. And so she was indeed finding beauty in a broken world. And I feel we have all these broken pieces that we have to figure out how to, how to use and how to connect and how to get rid of and all these things that we can't recycle and et cetera, et cetera. So she was a real inspiration to me. And that was way back at the beginning before I had thought of this project that we're talking about now, the Green Man. But yeah, she was seeking healing and then she helped heal through mosaic. So hats off to her. Pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you about it because I remember uh, reading about Terry Tempest Williams, I think in your artist statement, how mosaic ties into nature and ties into just everything that we've already talked about and how and I'd also just love how accessible it is for just any age or any any skill level really um so there's so many things about mosaic that just tie together all of these themes that we've talked about today so true so true well it's not an intimidating form Anybody can put pieces together. It's amazing. <laughs> what happens? In some ways, it's like uh, like self-organizing systems. So it reminds me of sort of flocks of birds who are paying attention to the bird next door, you know, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So you kind of one piece informs the next, perhaps. I don't know how it works yeah. exactly, but that would be how I would approach it. Yeah, and just being able to see the shapes and the colors that are already there, and letting your eye guide mm. you almost the way Lisa did as a child when you're out in nature. So it gets you out of your head. Mm. I mean, you know, talk about leaving yourself alone as an artist to just have these beautiful, these pieces to work with and yeah. just let it happen. That's mm -hmm. so freeing. Yeah. 
How many of us collect rocks? <laughs> <laughs> I used I mean, to, yeah. <laughs> you, end up, you end up with rocks you don't know what to do with, broken pottery you don't know what to do with, and you don't want to throw it away because it's still beautiful, and practical side takes over, and suddenly you realize the relationships between things. Mm. Suddenly you yeah. create something new out of that. I think um, just hearing this makes me think it's such a healing aspect because I, I'm mindful of so many people who are depressed and myself, you know, included uh, many, many years of depression and just feeling like, what do I do with all these pieces of my history that I felt that were a waste? And so is, is there some use for them now today? You know, can I put those pieces together in some way that informs something bigger, you know, that has a meaning and doing that has really been healing for me. So I would imagine it could be done in sort of this therapeutic, well, it has been, of course, you, you mentioned that, but really struck me as a possible need or use even among people with depression or, or a sense of loss or, you know, because even the pain can be a useful, it's a very beautiful part when it's in context with something else. Yeah. And I don't think anything is really lost. <laughs> right. It's recycled or it's reimagined or it's, you say, oh, well, it did help me to be a cashier back in when I was 16. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> This might be a good place to put this poem I picked out from Mary Oliver, who has so many amazing nature poems. Yeah. What can I say that I have not said before? So I'll say it again. The leaf has a song in it. Stone is the face of patience. Inside the river, there is an unfinishable story and you are somewhere in it. And it will never end until it all ends. Take your busy heart to the art museum and the chamber of commerce, but take it also to the forest. The song you heard singing in the leaf when you were a child is still singing. I am of years lived so far 74 and the leaf is singing still. And for me, that leaf is the green man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Culture Matters in Malden, a conversation with artist Lisa Tiemann. For more information about Lisa Tiemann, visit her website at lisatiemann.com. That's Lisa, L-I-S-A, Tiemann, T-I-E-M-A-N-N.com. For details about the Green Man Mosaic Project referenced during this conversation, visit neighborhoodview.org and search for Green Man. This episode was co-hosted by Amanda Hurley and Osa Schwab, edited by Amanda Hurley with musical excerpts from David Monsini's Mother Nature's Breath and Pleasant Mornings by Jose Prieto and Irmas Maurizio Yaziki. For more information about this and other episodes, visit matv.org slash culturematters. Follow us on Instagram, on YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud.